Hey, this is Chase Masterson, host of the hit Discovery podcast, Disco Nights. Star Trek Discovery may not be back till next year, but rest assured, Disco Nights will be back this fall to talk the new Star Trek Picard series, as well as everything we hope and expect from Season 3 of Discovery, plus some other special surprises. Join me and our special guests when we return with all new episodes this August. Until then, Disco Lives! Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, co-host of Inglorious Trexperts, and if you're a fan of Battlestar Galactica, and who isn't, check out my new oral history of Battlestar Galactica with Ed Gross, So Say We All. It spans the complete history of Battlestar Galactica from the 1978 series to Ronald Moore's brilliant reinvention and even Galactica 1980. Available from Tor Books, wherever books are sold. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Docterman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. Here we and are. Here, I was doing a dramatic Shatner pause. Oh, a dramatic you Shatner pause. You stepped on okay. my pause. Okay, and, and go. Okay. Today, we're talking about the history of Star Trek costumes and uniforms and collecting, and we have a very special guest. Um, I'm really uh, pleased to welcome Rob Klein. Rob Klein is a uh, a legendary curator and collector of, of Star Trek uh, and and many other genre uh, memorabilia, um, an but specifically costumes. A, he's uh, an archivist. A... He worked for uh, official uh, archivist for Disney. I mean, he's done amazing stuff, and it's it's such a thrill to have him here to talk about a subject that we are so uh, uh, so excited about. So, welcome, Rob. Why, thank you, Mark, and thank you, Darren. Well, uh, it's it's great to have you here. I mean, you've uh, You've done a lot of stuff, and you you know many things. He's a man who knows many things. <laughs> we know many things. Yes, uh, we've also known each other a long time. So it's it's great to see you guys continuing to uh, keep the uh, the legacy alive and uh, the fires and burning. We're keeping yeah. the old flames uh, stoked. We're burning. We're burning for you with <laughs> our love. It's a I very it's a very worthy uh, franchise to keep alive. Definitely. Yeah, you know, and it's funny because we started this uh, show. Uh, uh, I don't know what was it back in October or something, and uh, you know we're like, oh, well, you know, how long can we keep this thing going? And it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And every time you know we do a bunch of shows, we're like, wait, wait, we got ideas for this and this and yeah. this. And it's like the, the topics never end. I mean, it's such a fertile ground to explore, which is uh, fantastic. Do you like Star Trek? Rob? I love the '60s series. <laughs> you ever been in a Turkish prison, Rob? <laughs> Do you like movies about gladiators? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, tell us a little bit about, because you have an amazing, amazing collection in an undisclosed location, which we can't talk about. <laughs> um, can you tell us a little bit about how you first got into collecting? And maybe tell us a little oh, yeah. bit about the highlights of your collection. Sure, I'd love to. You, you know, um, <clears throat> I grew up in Southern California. And, um, you know, I, I remember, so here we had um, KTLA Channel 5, uh, which was um, the local... A station owned by Gene Autry, the the cowboy, mm -hmm. the singing cowboy, right? Yeah, owner of the Angels, and the the Western Heritage Museum. Anyway, so he would run Star Treks every day um, at five o'clock, and you know I saw them growing up, had the Mego dolls, but I don't know. I mean, what what age were you guys when you guys got hooked into sixties Trek? I was probably about uh, six, 
seven? Yeah, around I there? was probably about the same age, six or seven. Because I was thinking about it, I was doing the math, you know, kind of like, oh, I couldn't have been that young. But then I started to figure out, like, when I bought certain Star Trek things, mm -hmm. and I'm doing the math, and I'm like, yeah, it must have been like six or seven, because I figure, okay, if that's when I bought the original Mego, sure. then I must have been, and then, you know, certain, like, if, if in 76, the technical manual came out, right, mm -hmm. and the, what, 75, the blueprints? So I had to already be a fan by yeah. then, so I was kind of doing the math, you know. So I, I guess, uh, you know, I wasn't even born yet, but I bought them. And well, they say that um, your brain is fully developed by age seven. Wow. Mm. And so that whatever, you're, whatever you like and, and have an affinity for at that point, you're pretty much set for life. So I think that pretty much explains our situation right now. Is that right? I don't know. <laughs> that's, that's I, what I, I heard. think my brain is still developing. Well, we're all <laughs> around the same age, so we were, I guess, what we consider a second-generation Star Trek fans, meaning that we didn't see it in syndication. But, I'm sorry, in, in, at the original, original run, run, but we saw Thank it when God. It, yeah, you know yeah. how old we'd be? We're, we're, on, the, well, <laughs> we're on the cusp sorry, of... Sorry, Judy. We're, we're on the cusp <laughs> of original geeks. We're we're on the cusp of original Star Trek fans. I, I don't know about that. I yeah I th you know I these days that. I think we're as original as you can get. I, I know what you mean, <laughs> but 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 we but meaning we didn't see it in in first run. We saw it when it started becoming we started in syndication. The, the, right. the phenomenon started to happen. They and, call us the Cindys. Okay. <laughs> Generation is, Trek. Is that what they call Cindy Brady fans from Brady? Wait, it's no, another that's podcast. something else. Yeah. That's a different podcast. But where I was going with this was that, you know, I remember seeing it as a kid, and, you know, it kind of goes over your, at least went over my head being a young kid, you know. Yeah. But when you start to become, you know, a teenager, for me, that was when Star Trek finally kicked in. And, you know, you as a Star Wars fan, as we all were, um, you know, aware of that as a kid. But when, when you're in your teens and Star Trek was coming on, it's like I think that my Star Trek fandom surpassed and still does Star Wars mm -hmm. because it started the, the characters and the, the concepts are not lost on you like it would be for a five or six-year-old. So started going into the conventions, and what captured my imagination in line for something, somebody said, oh, so-and-so has a, one of the original phasers. Mm -hmm. And I was going... What you know? I, that that whole concept just didn't hit me as like how is that possible? The because idea that these are real things. They're real things, right. and you just I just assumed that the studio would have them. You know, mm -hmm. my my grandmother had worked at Universal Studios, so I was aware of you know the studios have props and stuff. So that sort of made me, you know, what does that mean? And and you start sort of asking people like, what do you mean that someone has one of the phasers, a real phaser, and. That sort of uh, started my um, curiosity and my imagination of like, well, when you, let's let's find out where these things are, and um, that sort of led me on my 30, 35 year quest of trying to find where this stuff is. Your galaxy quest. Yeah, sort of. <laughs> uh, um, and and the one thing that um, we 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 can't talk S Star Trek artifacts without bringing up Greg Jean. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Greg is um, miniature maker, Academy Award nominated. Um, artist and so forth and he is the guy that probably has the largest collection and obtained his collection through his passion for Star Trek and also his connections in the industry of right. hearing where things went to. Well and he built a lot of miniatures for the show as well mm -hmm. uh, for the movies. Right. Exactly. That, that was later on. It was. He, he was very involved in very early fandom in the 60s while the show was still going on. Right. Older and, than us I would point out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um 
but uh, yeah, he he was very involved from the beginning and was around when some of that stuff was getting uh, disposed of, let's say. Yeah, well, here's the great story, and some know this and some don't. And um, one thing I've always found with Star Trek fans is sometimes, even if they don't know something, they feel like they will they will sort of bluff and I I knew that. So <laughs> there's no no one's judging here. So I'm I'm saying the story for those that haven't heard it. But Jim Rugg, who was the special effects supervisor, had kept quite a few things. And uh, a lot of the Star Trek fans knew this, and they would go and visit Jim Rugg. Um, I don't know how they would track him down or find them, mm-hmm. but somehow they'd make their way over to his home. And uh, he had uh, the working Phaser Two. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the, that's a whole other thing. There's rumor that there was two made for the show, but the second one's never seen itself, and there's no confirmation there were two. We know there was one. So we had the the working Phaser 2 that we see in the making of Star Trek book that's right. all taken apart, and you see all the wonderful inside workings and stuff. And then he had, like, the parasite creatures from Operation Annihilate. He had, uh, you know... I mean, just literally, just all the he wonderful had the little necklaces pieces. from uh, Mud's women. Yes, or, or uh, I Mud. Uh huh. He had, um, uh, you know, I don't think he had a communicator, but literally, he had it. He seemed to have saved one pretty major mm-hmm. item from the whole, th- the, all three the seasons. Kelvin's belt buckle. Exactly. Right. And uh, the Star Trek fans that would get to visit would take photos of these things. And one day I heard a story uh, from one particular fan. He had like four or $5,000 in his pocket. And he was trying to get up the gumption to ask Jim Rugg, would you sell something? Right. And he didn't do it. He, he just felt like he, he shouldn't say it. Well, apparently, uh, the story goes, Greg Jean had heard these fans were there, heard that someone had money in their pocket. And apparently, Greg had gone the very next day and just made an offer. <laughs> <laughs> knowing that it sooner or later if he didn't make his move right someone else would someone else would have courage. and greg was able to get pretty much the entire jim rug collection so wow. greg uh, was able to uh, secure that collection and keep it intact and that's the great thing about greg gene is that he's a fan and he's kept this collection together mm-hmm. it's okay if you want to sell something but it, to me it, the stuff is neat when it's together yeah, right. you know, because and it's worth noting know. that Greg was sort of a legendary figure in the '70s and '80s. You know, if you read like Fantastic Films and Starlog, mm-hmm. they were always profiling. You know, Greg and Greg was very well known and worked on a bunch of mm-hmm. independent science fiction movies and just a lovely, lovely guy. Yeah, and yeah. little movies like Close Encounters, <laughs> and 1941. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's done some wonderful stuff. Um, but the great stuff. thing is that. Greg has always been sort of open with uh, talking with fans and, and friends and uh, and sharing his enthusiasm for this stuff. He's one of these guys where if he knows you're a real fan, I mean, it's like, I don't know if it's like, an, I think we all understand what he, he's like, it's an unspoken thing. You just know if somebody throws a line out, you know they really are a fan of Star Trek. Right. They're not just somebody that's like, oh, that's worth something. I want it, right. you know, or, but um, so I guess... I'd always assumed that, okay, the props are sort of found. They, they were known to be around. Right. But for me, uh, the wardrobe was always the thing that I discovered quickly was sort of a big question mark. Yes, some people had stuff. Greg had wardrobe. But it was sort of this weird thing where it was like, okay, well, there are certain things in, in fans' hands. And then it became, well, what does Paramount have? Right. And I was able to sort of figure out what Paramount had or didn't have. And then there was sort of this mystery of, 
wait a minute, the fans don't have it, Paramount doesn't have it, something's missing here, and mm. that was sort of where I went on a search to so- try to find where the wardrobe went to. Now, search for Spock. <laughs> the search for Spock. <laughs> there's, there's, you know, obviously different kinds of wardrobe. Yes. There's, there's the obvious, you know, main character stuff right. that is easily recognizable. Um, there's the secondary, you know, for lack of a better term, the villain wardrobe. Yes. You know, uh, yes, and there, there's and the yeah. very, you know, high... no villains, only antagonists. That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> but easily recognizable as from Star Trek. Uh-huh. But there's a whole other stuff that aren't necessarily instantly recognizable by, you know, non uh, collectors or yeah, non-aficionados. Yeah, like James Pauly has been putting all that the, the Way to Eden stuff on display yeah, right. in New York, and uh, it's like I think that stuff looks like it could be from Rosemary's Baby or <laughs> at, you know uh, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, but you know yeah. it was from the Way to Eden. You wouldn't necessarily know that unless you were a diehard Star right. Trek fan. Right, right. It's funny because. Um, that was sort of where uh, all these years of rewatching the episodes over and over again really paid off for me because um, uh, what happened was there was in 1993, I think the year was, Bill Tice had an auction. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, b- before that, what happened was Bill Tice had lent his collection to the Smithsonian. And that was remember before that? you go there. Uh huh. I just want you to tee up because, you know, yeah. we always assume people know these right. things yeah. who Bill Tice or oh, William Moore Tice was. And his significance, yes, in the, the annals of Star Trek, and I say that because he he had more, arguably, to do with defining the Star Trek look than anyone other than sort of Matt Jeffries. He's the one who 100%. designed the Star Trek Delta Shield. Mm-hmm. It, it yeah. came from a little sketch that he did, and their entire their entire universe is based on that thing. Yeah. Now. Look, look, and there's Incredible. no one, there's no costume designer who has worked on Star Trek since. That you know comes close to the imagination and the genius of William Wertice. It's just everything he did just was right, and uh, I think even the new shows are still playing off of what he set in motion. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, um, and for better or for worse, the better I think is the homage to his work, right? Well, I, I, that's why I love uh, uh, Kaplan's work on the J.J. movies. You know, and look, yeah. we're, they're very divisive, the J.J. movies, and there's a lot of things we like and a lot of th- more things we probably don't like about them. But the costumes are fantastic. And I love uh, Kaplan's work on that and his work oh, yeah. on Star Wars. I mean, I think of, of J.J.'s crew of, uh, Hail, you know, Merry Men, you know, the Scott Chambliss and all the people that he keeps going back to, the one that I really think is super talented that I, I is Kaplan. Oh, it's it's. Uh, I don't know. I I put a um, um, the uh, Carol Marcus costume into my collection from I guess the second JJ movie. Uh, not a favorite of mine as a film, but certainly um, the wardrobe I thought was uh, neat enough to kind of put next to the '60s wardrobe because it's a complete homage to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but with Tice, uh, you know, he was the designer and. Uh, did all those wonderful things, and the thing that really needs to be said about him is that he had no budget for the '60s show. So yes, he had the Starfleet, you know, costumes built, but coming into the guest stars and the villains, I mean, he literally had to put that stuff together with uh, just nothing, and uh, you know, twenty bucks, you know, um, right. 
for this or that. And, and in the uh, the female guest stars, it was about a dollar because they used a lot less fabric. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that was a good thing for the people that wanted to see more skin or something. Or well, look, what was but, the yeah. famous story about? It was like the the you know his design aesthetic was uh, something you just drew on a woman but missed. <laughs> you know, so it, and it, and it, it seemed as if it would fall off at any minute. Right. Yeah. I mean, and you look at yeah. you know what he did with you know Cam- uh, Carolyn Palamas's goddess outfit. Oh yeah. Or Sherry Jackson in yeah. uh, What a Little Girl's Made of. I mean, these are such. Not only are they gorgeous costumes, yeah. But uh, I mean, look how they make these women look. I think that's why when we were young mm-hmm. uh, and kids, and uh, it still are, but. That stuff so resonated, it was so iconic. You know, um, uh, Susan Oliver is the Green Orion slave girl. Yes. These weren't just beautiful women, but they were dressed so beautifully by him. Oh, the and... wardrobe just enhanced their beauty. And I don't. I think a lot of them would would uh, agree that they probably never felt quite as beautiful uh, ever in a, in a in a project, other you know than wearing the tie stuff. Mm-hmm. I remember specifically. I spoke to Yvonne Craig. Uh, about her costume and she was saying that uh, her being a dancer her whole career that that leotard that she wore is in the uh, whom gods destroy episode she says it fit like just the fit of it was incredible and then she was able to do things in that outfit that she couldn't do in other outfits so i mean somebody should have got much a, is certain somebody should, <laughs> <laughs> somebody should have gotten a hold of tice to consult with like you know dan skin or those you know sure. those leotard companies well as so, great as she yeah. looks as batgirl and she looks pretty spectacular as yeah. batgirl i mean that that green orion slave girl uh, outfit that she wears in whom gods destroy is probably one of the highlights of the episode it's, I mean, incredible. it's not particularly good uh, yeah. <laughs> i mean even uh, you know third season you know, when you look at it, that's one of the highlights is William Wear Tice because the episodes aren't good, but you look at Cloudminders, uh, the lovely Draxine. Right. I mean, what a gorgeous Incredible. dress. Yeah, only one of those has ever existed. It, that's another thing with Star Trek. It's I do get in debates with people, but pretty much there were two of everything made. There, the, I have never seen... Um, you never see three unless it's a rare exception. Like you'll see three of something if it's like a mirror, mirror Captain Kirk vest. Well, can you explain multiples to our audience? Yes, hundred percent. So basically there's never one of any prop uh, or costume because the reason is if a prop is dropped on set and breaks, you can't use it. And you know, time is money in the movie industry and you need to have a backup ready to go. So you don't. And the stop most production. valuable thing on a production is to never stop production moving. Exactly. You have to keep filming. Yeah. So, time is money. So absolutely. So basically, in breaking the props down, there's what's called the hero prop, which would basically mean the the prop that is considered to be the most detailed, or perhaps in some cases the working prop that would light up right. or or the best spin. quality of the ones that were made. Right. And then they would have ones uh, that basically would be the the seconds or the backups, and uh, those would be like the non-working communicators, for example, that uh, most of the time that's what you see them holding. If it falls off the Velcro on their pants and breaks, it's not a big deal because they'll grab the backup. You know. Mm-hmm. And the big debate these days is how many uh, uh, of each prop were done. And, and even though there's some wonderful websites that have gone into the, the details on like there's X amount of communicators, you know, I don't still think there's a handle yet on there were six or there were seven, you know, Mm -hmm. no one really seems to know. But um, so, you know, you have hero backups, heroes and backups, and it's the same thing with wardrobe. You have wardrobe uh, that 
is it's definitely not really a hero wardrobe. It's because all wardrobe is usually made the same quality, but you do have at least two of every costume made for no other reason that uh, there is a SAG rule that the actor has to have a change of clothes. Right. And um, but also, if something is ripped or God forbid somebody spills something on a on a costume, right. or if something gets destroyed in dry cleaning overnight, yeah, you, yeah, you got to have something ready to shoot. Um, and it's even more for a fight scene. Like if Shatner has his tunic sure. ripped, there are multiple takes. They need multiple more than two uh, of any one uh, uniform or exactly. Costume. And it's so funny because people say, "Oh, Captain Kirk, it's rare," and I actually say, "Well." <laughs> If you want to get a star wardrobe piece, Captain Kirk is the one to go for because he's the one that had the most tunics sure. made for him. But uh, that still doesn't have a reflection on the value of those these right. days. But um, so so that so basically, um, I have seen at least two of every major Star Trek piece, and that is even including the guest stars. And I've had some mm-hmm. other Star Trek people kind of balk at that but my answer is well you can balk all you want i've seen it with my own two eyes i mean i mean there are there are some it's more easy to to point out what i have never seen a duplicate of in the droxine dress in particular uh being that it was so elaborate that would make sense that there may have only been one because like look we're going to make one of these and we're literally going to swarm the actress the entire production to make sure nothing gets torn or 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 stand by with staples but in uh, regards to the Leslie Parrish toga that you mentioned, Mark, um, there were two of those, and I actually actually used to own one of those. Um, the first one was actually auctioned at Bill Tice's auction when they auctioned his estate off. Right. And then the second one was actually part of um, uh, a discovery I had made, and I, I'll tell the story because it's quite interesting. Um, I was working with a guy who bought a bunch of the Battlestar Galactica wardrobe from a costume company. It was a privately owned company that was building up their rental stock by purchasing wardrobe from the major studios such as Universal and Paramount. Mm And I had worked with him a lot on Battlestar Galactica stuff uh, and we had known that this company had bought the Universal wardrobe collection. Mm. Uh, And just to kind of tell the audience what happens is usually uh, when a wardrobe department at a studio gets to the point where they're at capacity and they need room, as all studios do, they go through their collection and they basically say, well, what can we reuse? What can we rent? Because uh, they go, well, we can rent this stuff. This stuff, let's say over here, we can't rent. Let's get rid of it. And that right. usually is sci-fi wardrobe, right. Western wardrobe right. from the Western films because other studios might like Western Costume Company would have a huge plethora of that stuff. Right. So Universal Studios is going, look, let's dump the if sci-fi. If they're going to rent that stuff, they're gonna, not going to rent it from us. Exactly. Right. Well said. And and so basically, at some point, Universal dumped their sci-fi wardrobe and their Western wardrobe. Mm-hmm. Well, what I had noticed was that there was a couple of Star Trek pieces mixed in with the Universal Studios um um, acquisition that he hmm. did when he because they were like look we don't want any of this sci-fi stuff mm-hmm. uh, and we were sorting through it and we found some Star Trek pieces and a couple years later I had kind of with doing some detective work had realized I think this costume company also bought Paramount stuff mm. and uh, there was an entrepreneur who I knew that was interested in investing in um, movie memorabilia and, then, and this was like would have been the mid 90s 
and he made a deal to go and buy some stuff from this costume company and I was sort of sent in as the expert or the the scout mm-hmm. to try to find stuff and after, and I was the first time I ever got carte blanche to roam the entire wardrobe facility before it was just we want to sell these racks take it or leave it but this time they let me look through and within about 10 minutes i spotted the space seed sleeper suits and they were on the top third rack on the ceiling and there was like six feet of them so when you see six feet of this sort of gold um, sparkly netting material. Right. That was when all the years of watching sixty Star Trek paid off. Went, those are the con sleeper suits. I didn't right. even have to go and look at them. I and just those are great that's... too. I mean, those yeah. are great yeah. costumes. But and then not too much longer, I was looking around and I found maybe about three feet of Klingon tunics. Mm. So then I was like, okay, that absolutely proves my theory. They bought Paramount because not too much longer, I was noticing there's more Mindy wardrobe. Right. There's Happy Days. Wonderful shows, but to me, it was all about the track. You recognized the Conrad Janice. <laughs> there was like there was like some huge Mork from Orc uh, suspenders, like those rainbow sure. suspenders yeah, yeah, he sure. made, and it was like, yeah, well, that's nice, but uh, I want to go over here. And I'm going back to the Klingons. I want to find more. I want to find the Romulans, which were actually there. So it turned out that this place had. Um, most of the, the and this what's amazing mm-hmm. is you said this is the nineties. This, this is nineties, the seventies right. or the eighties. It's the nineties. It's the nineties, and uh, the the sad thing was there were a few pieces from Trek that had been rented and returned back to this place and ruined, but oh. being altered for another production, and and that's why these things really unfortunately aren't safe with the studios unless they. Uh, recognize what they are and then archive them. At the time, there was no studio archives except for Warner had an archive that mm-hmm. started in uh, mid to late 90s. And then, of course, Disney's archive started in 1970. So Paramount didn't have an archive. Uh, maybe they would have saved the Star Trek stuff had they had one. But then again, maybe they wouldn't have because the archivists can't save everything. They right. have to be... I know the Paramount archivist uh, who's there today, and he's a great guy, but he can't save every Star Trek thing even of right. today's productions. He has to be very picky because they have limited space. Now, I Paramount done more. <laughs> Paramount did have um, a... Uh, small selection of Star Trek stuff that they put underneath one of their uh, one of their stages. Yes, in that, the, that's in the basement of one of their. That stages. was one of those things that you would hear about in the '90s. You're like, yeah. that's totally BS. But it turned but it, out to be it true. Turned out to be hundred percent. What, what exactly yeah. under one of the stages? Under one of the stages in, a, in, a, in an office or a, it's a not an office. Room, it was or? like a warehouse space uh-huh. underneath. I, I think it was uh, stage fifteen or something like that. I don't exactly remember. What was but there? It was a storehouse of stuff. What I they just... had, uh, they had um, photos. They had mm-hmm. uh, paperwork. They had file cabinets. They had boxes and boxes right. and boxes of stuff. Yeah. And what uh, happened to it all? Yeah, it, they, I, that's the big thing. I mean, it's been long ago moved out, but yeah, um, it existed. And I was down there when we were working on the Star Trek, uh, the motion picture ah. project. Um, so this but, is recent. I mean, relatively. Well, you know, within the past yeah. twenty years. Yeah. Did you get to see it? Because I never got to see it when I was I working with you I on that project. I yeah. didn't see the TOS stuff because that stuff had been moved out by that time. Okay. Um, but I have seen pictures of uh, when certain people from the Star Trek Next Generation art department went down there, mm, and I've okay. seen photos of those existing. 
Yeah, I mean, I have been privileged in my career to see so many original shows in its original condition. And then working for Disney, I mean, my job was to I get the first access to like the Pirates of the Caribbean stuff and select what to keep for the archives. So it's to me, it really is neat to be able to see how many Jack Sparrows there were or how many Kirks there were for, you know, um, a certain filming that means something to mm-hmm. me and uh, it was a shame that I didn't get to see that collection intact but um, you know I heard about the legend of what yeah. was in there I, apparently and it, it the, wasn't a large collection no obviously. it was very maybe a rack yeah. is what I understood yeah. I don't even know if it was on a rack but enough to fill a wardrobe rack which is approximately six feet mm-hmm. you know it's a standard rack for a wardrobe but um, yeah um, not a lot of I think there was definitely a lot of Starfleet stuff yeah yeah, I mean the recognizable stuff. Yeah, the stuff yeah. that you couldn't rent. Hundred yeah, percent, and also the stuff that you would have to. You um, I mean it was the no-brainer stuff to save. You know, I, I believe yeah. the the ruck uh, gown with the shoulder pads existed. Mm-hmm. Yes, and matter of fact, Paramount or CBS now, I guess who controls that still has that because mm-hmm. that's part of that touring Star Trek exhibit. The, right. the rook, the Ted Cassidy from. Uh, of the Girls stuff Man. in your collection mm-hmm. from the original mm-hmm. series. Because I want to talk about yeah. uh, moving forward also, but uh, what's your favorite piece? Oh, hands down, um, uh, Dr. McCoy from the third season. Um, Dr. McCoy is my favorite character, and that was one of the first Starfleet pieces I, I got. Um, a lot of the Starfleet wardrobe was out by the first generation Star Trek collectors. I don't know how they got it, you know, and but, you know, there was quite a few. You know, Greg had stuff, and... Tunics were out there, mm-hmm. and uh, one particular guy got a Kirk and a McCoy, and was like, oh, "I'm keeping Kirk for my collection." And I would be, you know, very. I was just like, well, Kirk, "McCoy was my favorite character, so happy to have McCoy." It was a complete tunic. It was from the third season, and the the thing I had learned. Well, kind of a neat thing to note is that I think a lot of people know this now, but it wasn't so known was that the Star Trek tunics have a zipper. Uh, and the tunic unzips down the side of of your body. So uh, that was sort of the first way to tell if a Star Trek tunic was authentic mm. because not a lot of people knew that. Right. And there were people that would try to fake things and it wouldn't have a, you know, a zipper and you go, mm, fake. And people, right. how do you know? And you know, there's that, and you wouldn't say well, because you, that would be the giveaway. Well, you'd want if it's somebody was it, you could kind of suss it out really quickly if mm-hmm. somebody was asking you because they were really wanting to know, or if somebody was just trying to pick your brain to know how to make a better fake. Right, a very so um, yeah. yeah. But yeah, so the zipper. Would, what about yeah. this money? Is uh, inauthentic to you? <laughs> yeah. Is it yeah. the president or is it the ink or the paper? Can you take a look at these printing plates? I mean, <laughs> the right weight. But uh, and and one thing I noticed was kind of interesting was that it had his name inside the zipper, and um, you know, D. Kelly and the number said N O O four. So obviously that means there's at least four, mm-hmm. which is you know kind of cool, and. Um, and then, you know, the the thing that was interesting to note later is that the first and second season tunics never really had names in them. I've heard that there was like a little tag that was sometimes on the collar, but I have never owned one of those. Mm-hmm. So the point is, is that the first and second season tunics are very hard to to pinpoint whose they were. So uh, this is having to stop you every yeah, every please. often because there's interesting yeah. uh, parts That's why you guys are the saying. hosts. <laughs> um, the first and second season had um, different material than the third season had. Yes. 
um, it had the uh, did, t- tell us something about that because they yeah they were made out of kind of a velour uh, material um, kind of a fuzzy velvet kind mm-hmm. of a kind of a look um, and um, the reason that they switched the material in the third season to what's called a gabardine is that the tunics. Um, would fade from dry mm-hmm. cleaning, and they would shrink. Mm. As a matter of fact, in the one of the Star Trek books, um, uh, there's a um, was it was it World of Star Trek? I'm not really sure, but one of the producers tells the story on how Shatner was mad, and he was like, "Look at this tunic, you know, you know <laughs> this is a cheap studio. Look at this." And he said that Shatner's belly was kind of right protruding out and he was like this yeah. is a cheap studio. there are actually a lot of memos about that yeah, yeah. And, uh, and that was an a, a, immediately and it wasn't only because shatner wasn't staying completely on his regimen right it was because the uniform was shrinking what do they say halfway through the season shatner would put on a few pounds right. or something. but yeah because well, and that was the reason for the creation of the green tunic which was less form-fitting perfect yeah exactly and and uh and then I think the funny thing was is uh, he was he, the guy was annoyed with 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 Bill Shatner for calling him out, and then he says, and then he said something like, "Well, go ahead and fix Shatner's toupee," or you know, because the lace was showing. And I was like, "Uh oh, there's some <laughs> rivalry between the producer and, and Shatner." But that is why they went to the the the, the, gabardine. the gabardine material. And also, if you look at the show, you could see the seam lines and the cuts of the tunic are a little bit more forgiving for. Um, Perhaps having a belly protrude, like the the mm-hmm. tunic got a little longer, right? And you could see that there's a anyway. But they, they tried to make improvements to avoid having Shatner upset, right? You know, and then of course right after they put all this money into making these wonderful third season tunics right. that they then were going to have for yes, season yeah. after season canceled. <laughs> Although yeah. they did use the same material on the Next Generation, did they? It, it, it okay. was it was a stretch gabardine, ooh, slightly. Um, and, you know, different colors. Well, before yeah. we get to anyway. uh, Next Generation, let, let's talk briefly about Bob Fletcher and his work on the, uh, yes, the movies. On the movies. Of course, Bob Fletcher uh, came in to do uh, Phase 2, and the, or was it, did he do Phase 2, or I was it just Star Trek The Motion Picture? He, he, no, I think Bill Tice worked on oh, Phase yes, 2. Oh, yes, you're right. And then he was you're unavailable right. for the, mo- for the yes, movie. Yes, that's so right. So that's when Bob Fletcher And, of course, Bill, Bill Tice had also famously done Pretty Maids All in a Row for Gene. Right. And uh, and then um, was involved with Phase Two. That's right. The, that's right. So um, and 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 those Phase Two costumes were more harkened back to the original. Absolutely, they, they were literally. Um, here's a great story. I don't think anyone has ever heard this one. You know, they they look the same. Well, one one of the most fun things I think we should say about the the '60s Trek tunic is the the command color, the gold. Um, the first and second season tunics have a yellow gold look to them. But when you get to the third season, it actually in person is what I would call avocado green. Right. And the first time you see it, you're like, whoa, that looks very 60s, but is that real? But the right. magic thing is when you photograph the avocado green third season command tunics, they mm-hmm. turn yellow. Right. It's just like this thing with photography, or at least that's what they would do when you'd shoot it with under the lights. 35 yeah. millimeter film. Yeah. I don't know what happens on digital these days. But when you, so when you see a third season tunic in person, uh, the command, it's it's this green color, and they were so uh, wonderful looking. When they went to phase two, they actually did a whole new dye lot to rep- re- recreate the red, the blue, mm-hmm. and the gold. And there's a really fun story where this one guy that was working uh, at Paramount for Next Generation uh, saw that they had a cover uh 
that they had made to cover some of the wardrobe to keep the dust off it, and he realized it was all the extra bolts of material that was made for phase two. Wow. They were just like, Ooh. we need something to cover this, this this new wardrobe. Do we have any extra crap around here? Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. use those bolts of right. material. We're never going to use those again. So, yeah, so uh, it was just neat to see that there was actually a lot of uh, – you know, money put into phase two to prepare these bolts of material to recreate the uniforms. So then when the motion picture starts mm-hmm. and Robert Fletcher is brought in to yeah. design the new costumes, um, it was sort of a, a, a radical departure from the colorful uh, uh, costumes from the TV series. This is something else that I've never told anybody. I was kind of saving this for a book, but since I love you guys so much, let's <laughs> let's, let's 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 go on the show here. You know, when we worked, Darren, on the motion picture project, you know, we learned that uh, we have uh, Isaac Asimov to thank for uh, making the Star Trek uniforms go for their classic red, blue, and gold to, well, in the future, everybody's going to wear pastels. And that's why we got those uniforms that are so bland colorfully, you know. Right. I guess it works on a on a scientific Well, and concept, Gene but... loved to be able to say he was doing yeah. real science. Like right. exactly. he was really in the thrall of people like Isaac Asimov uh-huh. and like these brilliant minds. So if Isaac Asimov says that, we have to do it. It was right. the same way yeah. that Jessica yeah. Van Puttemaker, uh, <laughs> Yesko Van Woodcomer, uh, you know, was, you know, we were going to do a wormhole because right. it's science. That's right. so cool. We're going to science the shit out of this. Yes. Yeah. You know, and so that's really a really fascinating story. Um, and, you know, I would say, you know, the Bob Fletcher designs for Star Trek the Motion Picture have kind of gotten a bad rap from a lot of people, but it was really interesting when we had Walter Koenig on the show. Mm-hmm. He loved them. He thought they were great. And he said partially maybe because I hadn't put on as much weight as some other people in the cast. <laughs> so he said it was more flattering for he me. Looked good. So yeah. he liked yeah. he liked the uniforms, whereas most of the cast was like, oh, those were awful. But what's so interesting is, of course, that despite the fact that most people did not like the Star Trek The Motion Picture costumes, Bob Fletcher was one of the few people to return for Star Trek II. Yeah, and, and, and I'll tell you something. That's, here's the, here's the, the, the nugget. It's like... They were fighting to have those costumes be gold, blue, and red. And I'll mm-hmm. tell you how I know this because there, I used to actually own a Bob Fletcher Star Trek The Motion Picture. I guess it's called the Class A tunic that mm-hmm. was in the blue. Mm-hmm. So they were, I mean, I have a picture of it. I should show oh, we'll have to put, put it on the uh, social on yeah, various tracks. So they on literally were either saying, like, you know, they were fighting to keep those colors. Right. And you know, I don't exactly know of the timeline, but it, you know, certainly at some point Asimov came in and said, no, no, no one would be wearing it. You know, I kind of disagree with that because wasn't that Kubrick's whole concept that if you're in a space suit and you're trying to do work in space, you want to see uh, your peripheral vision like, hey, the guy in the yellow suit, right. that's so-and-so. Right. You want to just immediately identify that that's this guy or that guy. Mm. So that's why in my mind that I justify the red, red blue, and gold. Right. But But, you know, Isaac Asimov knows a few things. So well, we we'll, know we'll RCA justified it That's too correct. because it's color. Yeah, yeah. You know, the neatest thing about the uh, the Star Trek, the motion picture suits, I love how the shoes uh, are built into the pants. Right. And um, I've they're got like footy pajamas. <laughs> they're like footy pajamas. We got to make a, a pajama suit out of this, like a, like a onesie <laughs> right. zip up. Like right. they're three year olds. Yeah, you're just so cozy in them. You just, you know, you'd be so happy to go to work in space, but not happy like to go being, to the bathroom. I feel like I'm being hugged all the time. Yeah, going <laughs> to the bathroom is never anything they can, they take into consideration with Star Trek wardrobe and Batman costumes. Right. And nobody knows how to. <laughs> you, you have to have a lot of help to get in and out. But of them. you know, it's interesting because again, 
you know, maybe the uniforms aren't great, but if you look at the Explorer outfits they wear when they go to V'ger, those jackets, mm -hmm. I love those jackets. Yeah, They're too. badass. Awesome. And then uh, Persis, Ilea, that right. beautiful white uh, miniskirt that she wears right. is, yes. is fantastic. And then, of course, we see Kirstie Alley wearing Ilea's in the elevator scene in Star Trek Two. If you guys have ever noticed that, we're talking about her I've hair. never noticed that. Yeah. I never realized yeah. that was they the same. They removed the collar. Yeah. They, they removed the, the sort of round. I had no idea. She has never looked more beautiful than she does in the elevator. That's true. Fantastic. I, I, I always love that scene. Lieutenant, are you wearing your hair differently? And that that's I a great noticed. example of pan and scan versus widescreen. That's screen. true. Boy, that, that scene just works like gangbusters in, in, in you know in, in, in the theater screen, and yeah. in widescreen. But, but man, when you pan and scan that and they're just going it's, back and it's, forth. It's terrible. Is yes. she like, who's he talking to? It's <laughs> right. just not even <laughs> who's, it, it, wait. Was, was that McCoy's it, voice? If we're ever teaching a class at like a school or something and have to talk about aspect <laughs> ratios, and stuff, that's a great scene to it's show. It's the one. That one or the Ghostbusters scene where they come into the office and Bill Murray, you can't see him stand up when Sigourney, wait, wait this is a Star Trek podcast. We won't talk about <laughs> No, I totally You know what? We're having a little, Darren and I have a little disagreement about that. Darren feels that the Star Trek podcast, you got to only talk about Star Trek. I feel it's a little broader that, you know, Star Trek was the, the touchstone for us that led to other interests and passions. It's okay to touch on this other I, stuff. I agree. Darren is I, less sanguine on that. You know, it depends on how it goes. The yin and the yang. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but you know, we all we still get along. Well, you know, <laughs> if we if we reference, well, we can also reference bad stuff. I was going to say if you reference only good things, but then again, sometimes referencing the the not so good stuff's fun too. So. But, well, you know, sure. you can also yeah. talk about Galactica because, you know, oh, yeah. I, have, I have a book to promote. Yes. <laughs> yes. Right thinking will be as quickly rewarded. <laughs> so, the, you know, the Bob Fletcher thing is so so interesting. I had no idea that about Ilea. Uh, you know, where do you fall on the Star Trek, the motion picture costumes? What's your, your oh, feeling? You know, I love the Star Trek, uh, uh, the motion picture costumes. I love the film, um, you know, how could you have been a kid growing up in the 70s and have Star Trek coming out? I mean, you know, we once, you know, we had Star Wars. It was like we were sci-fi junkies and we just I had to get our, you know, my fix at any Galactica, like Galactica 80 Buck Rogers in the 25th century. Just give it to me. So here comes Star Trek, the motion picture. You saw it. Yes, I mean, I don't disagree with some of the haters out there. It's particularly a little slower. It wasn't what people wanted, or they're wearing pajamas, or, you know, it's it's like watching paint dry. It's like, okay, I, no, it's a wonderful film. I love the wardrobe. Um, you know what I don't like you know, in that movie? The security, the, the engineering outfits, those bulky white things with the target on them. Oh. <laughs> uh, and, and the security outfits with the little helmets and the brown security outfits. And those, those are a little wacky. Yeah, and they yeah. got reused for, um, the, I guess the engineering got reused also, in the course, in Star Trek Two. Sure. And then I guess they kept reusing them because... Well, well, Star Trek Three, yeah. they used the security outfits again when uh, D. Kelly is uh, in uh, Spock's quarters. Right. right. So, yeah. spoiler alert. I do remember seeing, that's actually a very rare costume because um, I did see one and it was like in a, a crammed inside of a box, crushed. Mm. And that was at the Star Trek warehouse. That was a real privilege was when, you know, Christie's got the deal to sell all the Star Trek wardrobe. Mm -hmm. And then after it, um, uh, a, a place called It's a Wrap, which is a, yeah. a store that buys war production wardrobe and then sells it. Um usually uh, as no-name stuff, just a pair right. of pants, a pair of sure. a jacket. But they had the deal to sell off the remainder of what Christie's didn't sell, and I was lucky enough to get to see the Star Trek 
wardrobe department uh, before It's a Wrap moved it. So that I got to go up and down the rows and see a lot of stuff that was in sort of its original condition. And, um, and this was primary you know, the movie stuff. The movie stuff, but there was actually quite a few 60s things there. Hmm. Uh, oh, it's kind man. of a controversial subject because um, there were people that were paid to consult with um, Christie's, and I have to say I benefited immensely by having them miss a few things. Mm. <laughs> oh, um, mm. the, I'll tell you, and cat's out of the bag, so it's history. The 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 Star Trek pants were always sixty Star Trek pants are, were always extremely rare. I mean, no one had them. Maybe one or two examples, mm-hmm. and that was you know they weren't at the place that I spoke about in the '90s that had a lot of the Star Trek wardrobe. The fans didn't have it. Paramount didn't have them. Well, actually. Paramount did have them. They were identified as Phase Two pants. Right? Oh, hmm. and because they, they had turned them into Phase yes, Two pants. Yes, and they were all the '60s pants. And that right. was the thing where, sort of, having worked for a lot of the studios, where um, the learning curve came in. It's like Phase Two didn't have that much money to make that right. many pairs of pants, right. and they were all the '60s pants. And there was everybody's pair was there. Wow! So that was a really great thing for me. Unfortunately, I never seemed to have the funding to just get it all for me. Right. I was only able to get a small percentage, so. I got a couple pairs, but I'm, you know, I'm. It's it's not about the quantity. It's just I was glad to uh, complete a few wow, costumes. That's, that's but awesome. But that was, that was a a good one where, um, you know, had I been hired to consult, mm-hmm. you know, I would have having the ethics. I would have had to told them, well, here's the '60s pants. You so, know, but, uh, starting with Star Trek II, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the main cast gets their mo- what's called the Monster Maroon uniform. The monster Maroon. How do you make a bunch of aging actors look great? In uh, you know, with one sort of you uniform. put them in a heavy jacket that keeps them t- completely enclosed. Yeah, but boy, it worked. Yeah, those They're are beautiful, gorgeous. aren't they? Yeah, yeah. And I'll tell you something about those. Those were made by Western Costume Company, and they are made to last. I mean, they were making those things, saying like, "Hey, we might do a few more movies," even though that, you know, arguably they may not have thought they were going to do more. But somebody right. in the wardrobe was like, "Let's let's try to make these of quality." Well, and they were still using them on the other shows. On Next Generation, whenever they did a flashback to sure. 23rd, 20 Voyager, they were still using them 20 years later. Oh, yeah. And that was the biggest, I think, mistake that I had made uh, was uh, a Star Trek II style costume would come up uh, maybe by a collector or maybe in an auction. And uh, I hadn't put two and two together to realize that, wait a minute, there's far too few hero Star Trek II, Star Trek Three hero character costumes around and yet there's all these like jackets with star trek 7 tags and voyager tags and mm-hmm. i and i and what it dawned on me later was that these had to have been the heroes just relabeled right. with the original actors names pulled out right. and that's exactly what happened because there was only one spock that was ever known to have survived and of course we didn't we knew that spock wouldn't have only had one right. so uh fellow collectors were Buying these jackets, uh, having maybe a professional work done to refix the inner lining, and then you know the seamstress would say, "Oh, look, there's a tag inside here," and they, mm-hmm. oh, and flip the tag open. Western Costume Company tag typed Leonard Nimoy. It's mm-hmm. like there's Spock's costume hiding in plain sight. You know, mm-hmm. that was a, a little known uh, Next Generation episode, the inner lining. But I'm Bob. Try the veal. He'll be here all week, boys and girls. Um, I, I. I think I've mentioned it on the podcast before, but I got to wear Shatner's tunic. I love that story. You got to. T- I know this it, um, is after Star yeah. Trek Six, uh, and Shatner is working on 
the uh, I think it was Interplay uh, uh, video game. Oh yeah, sure. Called Starfleet um, Academy, Starfleet right? Academy. Yeah. and they were shooting across the street from uh, Paramount. Uh, and uh, my uh, my friend was one of the ads on it. And one weekend we went and visited the costume trailer. Mm. And uh, I got I I brought my uh, '70s Don Moore Spock shirt with me that I had when I was seven years old. And uh, I got my picture taken in Shatner's original tunic, holding this Spock shirt. <laughs> and it was one of the greatest times in my life because it was uh, it was I think the last time that Shatner had worn that. That, uh, well, no, then he would wear in Generations. I don't know if it was the same one. Ah. Well, that's such a wonderful story, but the story that I even like more is the story about him ordering the roast turkey for lunch. Can you tell that? Because that's just that says so much about Shatner and well, his personality. It, it, it just, you got to do the it, voice. I, oh, I, I will. Okay. Um, it, it just shows what... Uh, what he enjoys himself so much. He's a lover of food. He's, he, well, he's a lover of many things. Yes. Lover of life. But uh, my my uh, my departed uh, friend, who uh, was one of the ads, um, was standing next to Shatner in the lunch line on this uh, on this production, and uh, Bill was going down the line. He said, uh, "Ooh, let me have some of that. That looks good." And then, "Ooh, roast turkey. I'll have one of those." And then, and then he just kept, oh, yams. <laughs> and he, he was just he was just so excited about this lunch uh, because apparently he wasn't getting fed well at home or something. And just loves it. it was, just loves he, it. He just he just loved loved living. Yeah, and, well, we, uh, on free enterprise, we it was very. He loved his sushi. We would always Ooh. send out for. Uh, he rather than eat the catering, we'd send his assistant out to get him sushi every day, and he quite enjoyed his sushi. So. <laughs> That's um, great. Well, listen, let's uh, let's because we talked about, touched on next generation. Of course, William Weir Tice came back uh, briefly for next generation, mm-hmm. but then really Bob Blackman sort of carried that forward for many years. Sure. What was your feelings about? Uh, the next generation because that that goes through an evolution and it's kind of the same philosophy that when they do the movies and they have more money they redesign the costumes and then those costumes are used and reused and reused um, well my first initial reaction was the colors are back you know right, right. For, for for next gen and then um, uh, but the you know it's like why is the captain wearing the engineering color you know that was right. you know and then of course you kind of think well I don't know if Captain Picard would have looked so good in the gold no no. So, and he certainly that. didn't look good in the blue, as we saw in that one episode uh, where he was uh, 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 a lieutenant. Oh yes, that's right. That's it right. It didn't go along. With are you talking color. about in Tapestry, okay. where we see him in the? Uh, I guess it we was tap- well, we see yeah, him yeah, in the uh, in the yes. classic Star Trek II right. uniform. It's no. not flattering look on him. No. Yeah, well, so that you have to take that in consideration, and, and what a handsome man William Shatner was to pull off that yellow. You know, the that's gold, right. You know, so but. Um, you know, the one thing that was kind of instantly recognizable was the uh, kind of the design or the shape of the um, the color panel on the costume. Where it's, has in, kind of, it's a really subtle thing. Yeah. And it isn't instantly recognizable, but once they're standing there, they are living Delta Shields. 
Yeah. Because it has that sort of cut well in, said. The, mm-hmm. in the torso. Yeah, so, I mean, and then there's the great stories about how they were initially made out of a, it was a one-piece spandex mm-hmm. jumpsuit, and then they would say they would have back problems, which I don't know if it's a polite way to say that they're, you know, they're getting camel toe or something, the males, <laughs> or I don't know what was going on there. But then they, of course, switched to the two-piece right. sort of thing. Can we say camel toe on a podcast? I, well, you just you did. I did. I said twice. Are. You know, no, but uh, you, so there was definitely something happening. You can't with... say Tontonto. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're a Star Trek podcast. <laughs> there was definitely something uh, not so comfortable about that. Um, can I tell a, a, a story that may embarrass a particular. Well, it doesn't matter. The, one's, the person's not probably listening. You know, this one guy that was Brent Spiner's. Um, Dresser, because uh, in the in the uh, the wardrobe world, uh, you have a dresser that helps you get in the costumes. Albert Finney, <laughs> and um, apparently this person, big Star Trek fan, got uh, the the job to work as Brent Spiner's dresser, and um, was putting Spiner in the costume. And Spiner said something like, "Boy, these are difficult to wear." And the dresser says, "I know," and. Now, when I was told this story, I was recognizing... Now, Brent Spiner was trying to give this person an out. And he says, oh, um, have you tried on one of the costumes? And then he says, oh, yeah. And he says, you tried it on so you would know how it fits, so you would be able to help us better put this on. And he says, oh, no, no. Um, I like to go to Star Trek conventions and, you know, wear these uh, character costumes to, to the conventions. And, of course, unfortunately... Um, Brent Spiner didn't feel comfortable working with that person, and there was a, ch- a change was made that afternoon. Oh but um, I just always kind of think, man, if you get there, shut up. You well, know, <laughs> one of my one of my dear friends uh, gave me uh, some advice back when I was in college. Uh, she said, um, uh, "Do a good job, make lots of contacts, and never let them know you're a geek." <laughs> <laughs> and I think those are good. Rules. You know, uh, I hope they keep that all in mind when they're dressing Brent for the Picard series because right, right, I know right. his, he's changed a bit in the interim, and it, I, I don't know how they're going to make him look it's younger. The, it's the uh, age, aging chip. He, the, the aging <laughs> chip. Yeah, forget the emotion chip. I put it in aging chip so that I would age. And, uh, you know, it's so funny because, he, you know, with Nemesis, he just couldn't wait to get out of this franchise. And now you they... have bloat turned up to 11. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you, I got to, to talk with him for a little while, way after, you know, years and years after Did Next Generation. you have a Brett break? I, had a bre- I, I love that. That's the <laughs> start. Trekkies is just like a classic to me. I often would like to call myself a Spiner fan. I became a Brent Spiner fan. Uh, and a data fan just talking with Brent Spiner, very charming. And, yeah. uh, I have to tell another story about him because because uh, it's so great. So we're at this like this like Burbank convention, and it's you one said of the, it with such disdain. This Burbank. <laughs> well, they convention. they all they've now jumped over the, the other side of the hill over at like the uh, the LAX area, but we're there. I don't know who was the the attraction, but we saw. Uh, Brent Spiner and I was like oh my god there's Brent Spiner and there's like nobody there and I was like man if this was like the 90s it would have been like a Beatles concert mm-hmm. right and you know for him or, or Patrick Stewart so I was like well we gotta go up and tell him what fans of grumpy old men we are yeah. <laughs> so, so walk up to Brent Spiner and uh, somebody's like really intently speaking to him and um, so we're politely waiting and the person sets down an envelope and walks away and right then and there, there was a person in a, in a wheelchair that's kind of 
slowly going by Brent Spiner and stops right in front of him. And he stops and then turns his head slowly, look, makes eye contact with him and says, I'm going to test your Android knowledge. Oh, Jesus. And I was just like, man, you oh, got, you got Brent God. Spiner right here. Just be, uh, just be cool. And then he didn't ask him any questions. And then he slowly turned his head back to the forward position and, and started the electric wheelchair and just moved away. And my wife and I had kind of a smirk on our face and he must have immediately known that we would have gotten it because then he looked at us and he handed us the envelope that the prior person had given him and said, would you guys like to go to a party? And we said, no, thank you. <laughs> and um, and then right then and there, um, I think he, he just thought we were going to be well-behaved and normal. And, and, and then I proceeded to, to talk to him about uh, something you and I, Darren, learned when we were working on uh, the last Starfighter project about Jeffrey Oaken, mm-hmm. who was the special effects uh, coordinator. He was, he was, yeah, the the visual effects coordinator on uh, Last Starfighter. Yeah, so I I mentioned to uh, to Spiner, I said you you were Jeffrey Oaken in um, Independence Day, right. and I had worked with him. And then right then and there, he was like he 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 knew that I must have been in the industry, and he couldn't have been nicer. And so I I just. I just had to say that uh, Brent Spiner, a lot of charm and uh, in a lot of humor. Independence Day, of course, uh, produced by our benefactor, Dean Devlin. Devlin. Yes, yes. And he's wonderful film. Brent's wonderful, and Dean has, loves Brent. I have to say, uh, I made a mistake. I, I, I referenced Grumpy Old Men. Of course, the movie that Brent Spiner started was Out to Sea, Ooh. not Grumpy Old Men. It was uh, Mathow and Lemon, but it was Out to Sea, not right. Grumpy Old Men. So I take back that joke. That's why it but wasn't funny. I was, knew what you it meant, It was though. Kevin Pollock and Grumpy Old Men. Yes, okay, yes. yes, yes <laughs> so you're close. Exactly, exactly. We're not responsible for knowing Walter Matthau films as we would be for being responsible for knowing Star Trek references. Right. That's right. not true. Walter okay. Matthau, also a legendary 60s figure. That's 100%. on the Otter Couple podcast. Uh, <laughs> uh, 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 available on the many, many of my favorite films. Um, but okay, so that that said, um, um, yeah, we, I, look, we all love Brent here. I mean, Brent's a, Brent's a character, but he's, you know, I mean, I had my run-ins back in the day with Brent, but... Uh, uh, I would love to hear about those. Is but, that a future uh, podcast? Maybe. Uh, I, 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 look, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, th- I think he's super talented. I'm. I'm a fan. He of certainly Brent. has a standing invitation to join us here on the Inglorious Transports. But, um, but yeah, I remember when I was covering back many many years ago when I was covering Star Trek for Cinefantastic. You know, he he kind of got really his nose bent out of shape because you know whenever I would be critical of the show, which I was want to do. Um, yeah. you know, uh, or honest about the show, I should say, right. rather than critical, because I said wonderful things about the show as well. He 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 always he would be very defensive about the whole. Thing. Yeah, you can. Why understand do I why. want to talk to somebody who hates the show as much as you? You know, because of course Michael Pillar wants to see Michael Pillar. You know, jokingly referred to me as the Antichrist of Star Trek, but you know, <laughs> he actually like would engage like. Like you know, he would argue with me when I was saying something about Voyager not liking a certain thing, and be like, uh, you know, this is why I think it's great. And we get into these, this, and it was great. We had this great like sort of um, back and forth about things. But um, so, what do you think? You know, bring us to to the current day, the Discovery uniforms, which are sort of more in the vein of, I guess, Enterprise with that the flight suit kind of thing. Do you? I have to admit, I haven't the faintest idea of anything going on in Star Trek Discovery. And, and, and that is maybe a hero to some or, or completely disdain to others. What but is the line in Excalibur? A hero to some, <laughs> yeah. a, a nightmare, nightmare to others. Nicole Williamson. <laughs> That's another great film and, and thing. To, but no, I, I just, I haven't paid much attention to any of the recent Star Treks, and I just, quite frankly, just don't care. I mean, I... 
Well, I hear that. Note, I, what a great yeah. way to end a podcast. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But I, I just feel like I'd rather go back and watch, uh, you know, City on the Edge of Forever for the umpteenth time, or watch Star Trek Three, or any of the feature films. I mean, I'm, I'm a classic track uh, fanatic. And I believe the, the term is hater. It's not even <laughs> hater. Maybe I'd like it, but I just, yeah. I just, I feel like there's just so much content out there. Uh, I don't know. I just. I Life's just, too don't short have to spend well, on look, things here, that you yes, don't enjoy. Here's yes. the thing, Rob. I, I think that you had such interesting insights, and we're going to have to have you back on the show. There's so much more to talk about. But well, let's wrap up by just asking you, you know, we, we talked about your favorite piece of yes. TOS memorabilia yeah. as your D. Kelly. Yeah. Um, you know, can you talk about some of the highlights of your collection oh, and sure. why you love them? And then uh, and then we'll have to um, so, yeah, save so, it for another podcast. So, oh, I'd love to come back. we got a lot to, lot to talk a lot about. more to but talk see, about. I try to get to a point where... Uh, I, li- I like to have my my collection sustain itself, meaning that um, you know the the I try not to spend you know life's money working on the collection anymore. So now it could sustain itself. So unfortunately, pieces come and go. Mm-hmm. So everything that I've acquired, um, sometimes you know you'll find a collector who will have maybe a piece uh, of something, and I have another piece to it, and I kind of have this this sort of uh, kismet that. You know, it's not really about who owns it. It's about putting the pieces back together and finding mm-hmm. good homes for it. So there's mm-hmm. been a lot of things that have come and gone, but there also are some pieces that I find are the kind of the core defining piece to the collection I have built. So I, I mentioned the Dr. McCoy, but I have a Spock, mm-hmm. which I'm very fond of. That uh, actually Romulan Commander. <clears throat> I do have the Romulan. I, I have that. Kirk's, as a matter of fact, and and you can't recognize them by names. You have to literally like. Uh, screen cap with uh, Blu-ray as we can do now and we could literally uh, find stitching details or flaws so I have a Kirk Kirk outfit mm-hmm. and uh, so most of the 60s stuff was around you know out there to acquire but the movie stuff I was able to get once Christie's got it and it's a wrap so I'm very fond of um, I was able to put together uh, William Shatner's Genesis cave suit from Star Trek 2 and that's just such a special scene, and it's also very special to me because when you actually are the one that you know grabs it off the rack, you know, and then is able to purchase it, right. and and I can tell you that story. Freed it from bondage. I freed it. It's <laughs> sanctuary. <laughs> uh, so, Let my so, people yeah. go. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so those those are those are the fa- it's, it's all very important because I I mean. Um, you know what I have I know is right and um, and I'm trying to use it as a basis to say look this is what the stuff is and share it with people and I mean your uh, Star Trek stuff's all fine but really it's the Galactica stuff well that's awesome. we love that <laughs> and, and the great thing I have to we'll plug Paramount's uh, our CBS is uh, costumes book I a lot of my collection uh, is in their coffee table book mm-hmm. um, it, they didn't individually credit us to each and every piece but many of the things that I was able to secure from that wardrobe house or in the book, and that's the most important thing because I think that's as as to date that is the definitive reference on uh, Star Trek costuming. Absolutely, I, I, my criticism yes. is that they should have done a '60s book unto itself and then. Oh, I, that's but, my same criticism with yeah. that book. It, it glosses over the '60s. There's not enough of the '60s because that is when the most interesting work was being done and the most diverse and sure. the, the most you know n- memorable and iconic. Yeah. And what's in there is great. 
but yeah. there's not enough of it. And then, and you know, I certainly was uh, offered myself as a resource, but they just didn't really seem too interested to go into the weeds. And what I always say is, like, if there's ever a franchise to go into the weeds and get into the minutia, it is Star Trek. So, yes. so Mark and Darren, I, I look to you guys to continue to take us into the weeds with Star Trek. Wow, that's a really great way to end the show, isn't it? I think we got to get Indeed. out of the weeds. And uh, Robert, but Rob, we would definitely want to have you uh, back on the show. I'd love to come this back. This is a fascinating conversation, an off-overlooked part of why Star Trek endures the brilliant, brilliant uh, costume uh, you know, all across all the series, you know, I have to say, I mean, obviously, I, I think, you know, that we, we believe that the original series towers over the rest in terms of the co- work on the costumes, but th- there's some great stuff on Deep Space Nine. Certainly, each of its phases have had iconic looks to it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and then, you know, there's a whole conversation to be had about uh, the validity of the choices on Enterprise and, yeah. and stuff like that. So w- we shall return to this place again. But, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I'd like to thank uh, Rob Klein for joining us. As always, I'm appreciative to you darren for shepherding this wonderful conversation and all adding all your in, brilliant insights and your stories about turkey sandwiches <laughs> and uh, i want to thank you our audience who have been so supportive of the show um i'm i'm continue every time we look at the uh the the, the numbers that just keep going up uh, i'm uh, who are all you people listening to this show we didn't know there were so many of you and so, keep bringing your friends and keep bringing your friends so uh thanks for joining us at inglorious trexperts if you're a fan of this podcast you may want to check out uh, Electric Surge's other podcasts like the 4.30 Movie every Friday, which a group of writer and producers curate fantasy theme weeks of classic movies. And of course, Disco Nights, the ultimate Star Trek Discovery podcast, available Sundays wherever you listen to podcasts with host Chase Masterson, as well as one of our newest podcasts, which I I, I strongly recommend. It's called Best Movies Never Made, about uh, movies that never saw the light of a projector pole, a lot of unmade uh, projects uh, from Jodorowsky Dune producer Steven Scarlatta and Sonic the Hedgehog screenwriter Josh Miller. They're doing an amazing job. That's every other Monday. And uh, if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. It helps bring new people to the podcast. And you can follow us on Twitter at Inglorious Trek or Instagram at Inglorious Trexperts. Um, and uh, very special thanks to uh, Bill Ritter and everyone here at Electric Surge, like our producer Natalie and uh, uh, everyone else, uh, Dean Devlin, uh, Cynthia. Thank you guys. You've been amazing. And uh, until next Saturday, keep on trekking ingloriously, of course. Engage. This podcast is a production of the Electric Surge Network.